Hi, this is Terry McCarty, and you're listening to another episode of uh, Reviews and Otherwise, and this is the first uh, one in a sporadic series discussing 1970s westerns, and that is the period uh, when the genre started to uh, lose fashion with uh, younger viewers and in terms of uh, older audiences they had uh, a diminished amount of uh, choices in theaters and uh, my guess is that even the audiences that were north of uh, 35 and 40 and up to uh, geriatric age in that era probably didn't always um, drink from the milk carton uh, that uh, studios were putting out for this uh, diminishing breed of people who wanted to uh, relive a past that in a lot of cases was depicted as not even approaching reality. So the first of these sporadic 70s Western episodes is titled the Twilight of John Wayne. And as we start this, 1969 was when John Wayne won his uh, one and only Acting Academy Award uh, for True Grit, which, while an upgrade in the kind of uh, westerns Wayne was making in that period, uh, produced uh, at Paramount uh, by Hal Wallace and uh, directed by Henry Hathaway and years earlier. Uh, they were all doing more standard fare like uh, the Sons of Katie Alter. And basically after True Grit, you would have thought Wayne would have uh, upgraded his career, but uh, he made a mistake which put a very large uh, shadow over the 10 years between the the release of True Grit and and his uh, death in 1979. And that was not to grow his audience, but to cater to the core audience of uh, people who wanted uh, traditional stories, wanted Wayne to still be dominant uh, over women, wanted Wayne to knock around uh, disrespectful young people, and uh, occasionally have uh, fights and uh, showdowns with uh, 
actors in in his age range that either did or did not uh, once have the name value that they did uh, in previous decades. So let's uh, go ahead and 1969, a few months after True Grit, there was The Undefeated, and The Undefeated had uh, Rock Hudson as a um, equal font title co-star shot in Baton Rouge uh, post-Civil War, and uh, Hudson has a pretty ludicrous uh, southern accent in it, and it's uh, just not a memorable uh, film at all. I think that now I can think more of like it had Roman Gabriel, who was then a uh, NFL star in it, and uh, uh, Tony Aguilar, who was a, a star in Mexico, and it's just a it's a film that um, just really not very memorable. Maybe the maybe the. Uh, the theme and the score is uh, about all I can say about it. Uh, moving on to 1970, Chisholm, which uh, he, Wayne was back at uh, Warner Brothers with uh, Bat Jack, and the trailer for Chisholm makes a great deal of the uh, Oscar win for True Grit, and that's intercut with the scenes from the film. And as a, as a kid, 10, going on 11, I remember Chisholm being a little bit livelier, and that was, I believe, the director that Wayne could always uh, direct from by remote control, uh, Andrew V. McLaughlin, uh, son of the great character actor, Victor McLaughlin, who is best known today for, for his work with John Ford, including uh, The Informer. And that uh, with Chisholm, it was uh, basically Wayne being the patriarch, uh, and mentioning about God-fearing in the dialogue every so often. Uh, Christopher George, uh, who most memorably was with Wayne and Hawks's uh, El Dorado in 67, uh, is in this, and uh, another, another member of the Wayne Sporadic Stock Company, Glenn Corbett, and Jeffrey Duell, who was the brother of uh, Pete Duell, who had a short uh, career doing a sitcoms and a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, imitation series called Alias Smith and Jones. Uh, Pete Pete Duell, had, uh, I believe, committed suicide late late the following year, like 71, 
But at that point, Jeffrey Dole looked like uh, like a star in the making, and they had had him as a you know not too uh, sociopathic uh, Billy the Kid, and Forrest Tucker was the uh, rancher villain, and. Uh, he and Wayne's, for the most part, their stunt doubles have a fight at the end before uh, Tucker gets impaled uh, by a uh, steer horn that's like, you know, came off the uh, wall of the, you know, the building that they're uh, fisticuffing on. And back then, things like that were G-rated uh, because... Uh, Western violence was considered, for the most part, less uh, graphic or less harmful to young viewers unless it was in more consciously ad adult fare like uh, Little Big Man or the Ralph Nelson film that I've never really seen in its entirety, uh, Soldier Blue. So that's, that was Wayne's uh, summer picture for 70. And then six months later for the Christmas holidays, uh, Howard Hawks' Rio Lobo. And there was a great trailer cut together for Rio Lobo, which had clips from the earlier Hawks films and uh, actually made you think that especially when they got to the tagline, this could be your kind of picture, made viewers think that they were going to see something uh, that wasn't uh, what the actual film was, which was pretty, even for an 11-year-old, it was pretty sluggish going. And there's interesting casting in it, uh, like Mike Henry, who between Tarzan and, and the playing junior, the Dom son of Jackie Gleason in uh, Smokey and the Bandit, uh, shows up as one of the main villains. And George Plimpton did a whole special uh, plugging the film and, and dealing with the fact that he played a outlaw that had a one line in the scene and I think it was something like Plimpton kind of shaving off his uh, East Coast elite to sound westerner and I got a warrant right here yeah, before he gets you know knocked out or, or done away with in whatever way Jennifer O'Neill, uh, just a few months from her uh, breakout role in Summer of 42, and uh, Sherry Lansing, who later uh, dropped out of acting and uh, became prominent uh, with working as a studio exec at both 20th Century Fox and Paramount and later uh, was married, or is married to uh, William Friedkin. Uh, and 
actually, you could say Rio Lobo stretched the G rating, uh, like a child, uh, you know, stretching a piece of uh, FLIR double bubble bubble gum where there was like waist up, partial nudity, although the arms covered the breasts and uh, and the killing of, of Mike Henry's character toward the end is reasonably graphic uh, for a, a, any, well, for a G film in its period. I mean, not Peck and Paul graphic, but uh, certainly, certainly for Hawks. And you could say also before we move on that because it's Hawks, at least uh, Jennifer O'Neill and uh, Sherry Lansing get something to play because Hawks uh, cared about uh, women characters and weren't afraid to have them be assertive, uh, whereas uh, Wayne tended to be like eek, eek, eek about that, with the only exception being uh, for uh, Maureen O'Hara. And you could argue one other time was uh, uh, Patricia Neal uh, when they were in the Preminger film in Harm's Way back in 65. So that was 1970. Then we go to the summer of 1971. During this period of time, Wayne's making... The Cowboys uh, for Mark Rydell, who, according to Mark Rydell, was able to be assertive enough to, to get Wayne to be comfortable with mostly being an actor in the film and not, uh, not treating him like he was uh, Andrew V. McLaughlin. But the summer of 1971 is important because... Uh, John Wayne did his uh, infamous uh, Playboy interview where he let a lot of his uh, patronizing, out-of-touch, uh, stupid white men views about uh, Native Americans and, uh, and uh, black people. And uh, I believe also remembering because I read it years later, uh, black people in the uh, film industry, he let that uh, out, let his uh, ugly side uh, fly, you know, flapping in the wind. And even in 1971, there was uh, pushback. I can remember people writing about it in, in newspapers and uh, by that time Wayne and the counterculture obviously didn't care for each other and uh, the general public kind of knew that Wayne was a creature of his era of uh, growing up and 
basically people just looked the other way and it wasn't like today where where the reaction would be to shut his career down and throw throw every single film he made in the trash but oddly enough Wayne seemed to acknowledge about a year or so later he did a Bob Hope special where one of the sketches was a All in the Family as a Western where he played uh, played a bigoted sheriff uh, named uh, Archie and uh, so let that be what it may and uh, but the Cowboys came out I believe toward the end of 71 but it went into general release in 1972 and it's Maybe that for because it's Wayne and it's Mark Rydell and and I believe Warner Brothers probably was hoping this was going to be a prestige uh, outing on the level of uh, uh, True Grit. It um, probably and because there were young people in the cast, including a young A. Martinez uh, prior to doing soaps like uh, Santa Barbara and General Hospital and also the fact that it being a Rydell film he had uh, Wayne interact with uh, actors that uh, wouldn't be afraid to stake stake their own claims uh, and give him some challenges and and scenes with him Uh, Roscoe Lee Brown as the as the cook Colleen Dewhurst as the madam and uh, in a bit of casting that probably appealed to Wayne Bruce Dern is a character known as Longhair, and Dern's character, uh, I guess you could say that Pauline Kael described him as a wheedling, cringing cur, but uh, Wayne was... uh, because of the storyline, actually willing to have uh, Dern uh, shoot him several times on on camera, critically wounding him before he before he has the morning death scene, and and then from the point that Wayne's not in the film, it turns into a, what you could say. A, is a standard uh, revenge fair and uh, the kids uh, kill Dern's gang with uh, varying degrees of brutality before Dern's uh, finds up uh, wounded and and uh, dragged off to his death by a by a cooperating uh, fast-moving horse 
and the, the Cowboys, uh, I think it probably did some business, but it wasn't something that was going to be a prestige uh, hit on the level of True Grit. So Wayne went back to uh, following it uh, a year later with, uh, let's, let's call it vigorous pleasing of his core audience. And these two films were done done at uh, Warner Brothers. And uh, 1973 in the spring, The Train Robbers, which was uh, directed by Burt Kennedy, and people have compared it to the scripts that Kennedy would do for uh, the 50s films that uh, Bud Bedeker directed for Randolph Scott. And without saying, you could say that in the Bedeker films that uh, Randolph Scott was willing to uh, take a few more chances than uh, Wayne certainly was. And and Margaret's in the train robbers, and you could say she gets she's allowed to be mildly assertive. Uh, uh, Rod Taylor's in it, probably because Rod Taylor's career was as a leading man was uh, starting to a trophy, and uh, and people filling out the cast were like. Uh, Christopher George again, uh, Bobby Vinton, and I didn't mention he was in uh, in uh, Big Jake, which is the, actually, I didn't come to think of it, I didn't, uh, let's back up to 1971 in Big Jake, which is where Maureen O'Hara's in it briefly, gets to be uh, very assertive, and, and the character, character she plays and the character Wayne plays are divorced and and Wayne's too uh, pig-headed to, to ever reconcile with her. And, uh, and actually, uh, Big Jake as a standard Wayne film is quite interesting and uh, apparently George Sherman, who uh, Wayne had worked with long ago, I believe at Republic, like in the 30s. Uh, Wayne wanted to uh, do a solid for him and uh, bring him on as the, you know, director of uh, record at least. And and I guess in terms of uh, George Sherman, things didn't work out all that well. So Wayne kind of like moved him over to one side and, and it's sad that he pretty much directed the majority of the film himself, which if you go by that, it's certainly, in terms of Wayne directing himself, it's uh, better than the Green Berets and, and maybe uh, 
in some respects on par with the Alamo. But uh, Big Big Jake uh, did kind of notice uh, the other films around it, and I believe the writers on that were Harry Julian Fink and Rita M. Fink, and the Finks later on uh, worked on a film called uh, Dirty Harry, which Wayne claimed uh, he didn't want to do because uh, uh, that he didn't want to appear in a film where they were saying fuck or whatever. And uh, I, and then Frank Sinatra was going to do it, injured his hand, and then Eastwood and Siegel took it. And it's safe to say that with uh, Dirty Harry that uh, you couldn't imagine Wayne uh, doing things that Eastwood did. You, you couldn't imagine Wayne up uh, on a uh, ladder truck thing or peeking into a woman's apartment or whatever. You know, you know that Wayne was very, 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 very image conscious and uh, he wasn't going to uh, be R-rated and... and uh, play a uh, bordering on sociopathic vigilante cop. So, so that that was that. But uh, Big Jake, uh, like some westerns uh, in in the late sixties, early seventies, took place in the early twentieth uh, century, and uh, it was more violent uh, than usual for Wayne and uh, I believe at first uh, the posters had it with a G rating and then then uh, somebody at the then MPAA thought better of it and uh, gave it a GP which is the equivalent of a PG and, and if you were to see Big Jake now PG-13. And toward the beginning of it, uh, you have Patrick Wayne, uh, Wayne's uh, son, who had a career but uh, that never quite got out of the shadow of his father's. You have a very, I don't know how to describe it, but very I mean, I don't know how much uh, subtext uh, there was or not, but there's a scene where when Wayne rides back to the ranch where the first batch of killings have taken place, Patrick Wayne, who obviously side sided with the Moreno O'Hara character, uh, starts uh, uh, taunting real life and on film dad. Uh, and calling him daddy, daddy. And and John has enough of it and punches Patrick to the ground and the audience is cued uh, to applaud and, and then John Wayne has a line like, uh, you can call me this, you can call me that, you can even call me a son of a bitch. But don't call me 
daddy. And the other very much of a plus to Big Jake is that Wayne had the good sense to cast Richard Boone as the main villain and uh, Boone to put it mildly if you saw him in villainous roles in westerns uh, thinking especially of uh, when he was in Ombre with uh, Paul Newman that uh, Boone had his great a malign uh, forceful presence as Wayne had a forceful uh, don't ever say I'm wrong patriarch presence and uh, it's probably one of the few times in a Wayne film where you think uh, uh, let's see let's see how the Duke gets out of this and and of course, um, there's a running gag through the film where Wayne encounters uh, various people that uh, don't know that he's uh, returned. Uh, and, uh, and then when his name is Jacob McCandles is uh, said in one way or another, the actor who's dead or or about to die says something like, I thought you were dead. And of course, the, uh, when Bones uh, plugged uh, toward the end, he, uh, he gets to say the same line. And uh, it's, well, uh, last thing to mention about uh, Big Jake is that Ethan Wayne, who... Um, kind of repeated uh, the acting career of uh, not rising to the point of uh, being like directly competitive with his father. At this point, Ethan was still like 11 or 12, so he gets to uh, be Wayne's grandson and Wayne bequeaths him with a Derringer so he can get, uh, start learning to kill early. And that's just treated matter of fact uh, rather than anything with any kind of depth. Uh, and let's uh, return now to the 1973 spring offering, The Train Robbers. The Train Robbers, as I said, was uh, Burt Kennedy and uh, was pretty moved along, aggressively mediocre. I, th I think it was Dominic Frontieri who did the score, so at least that was doing its best to liven it up. And uh, th about three months after that, midsummer 73 was the uh, Wayne's uh, last Western to get a Warner's release, and that was Cahill, United States Marshal, where, again, to sort of 
mildly reach out to the youngsters or, or teens in the audience. Cleo O'Brien played the younger son, and uh, the older son was played uh, by Gary Grimes, who had done, I think by that period, he had done both the Summer of 42 and the uh, sequel, Class of 44, and Cahill, I remember, is being pretty routine stuff, uh, and George Kennedy's the villain, and he, and Kennedy was always good uh, playing villains, uh, and this was uh, Andrew McLaughlin, and a couple of years earlier, the last uh, major starring film of uh, James Stewart was called uh, Fool's Parade, which is where Stewart was willing to go a little bit out of the box for him and uh, and Kennedy kind of did the same for McLaughlin playing a sadistic sociopathic uh, I believe the character was prison warden and, and uh, sort of like uh, fake pious and blithering about Jesus and uh, and that film, reaching out to the younger audience, set in the 30s, uh, uh, Kurt Russell on uh, furlough from Disney. So with with uh, with Cahill, I just remember, besides Wayne and Gary Grimes and uh, and uh, Clay O'Brien. Uh, George Kennedy playing it pretty much effectively uh, straight as the villain and and as the Native American stereotype uh, there was Neville Brand who I don't really remember that much about him uh, in the film I mean he was certainly great in uh, like the Laredo series or the villain in the Anthony Mann, the, the Ten Star with back in 57 with uh, Henry Fonda and uh, uh, Anthony Perkins. So, so that for, for a couple of years ends Westerns for Wayne and, uh, and then Wayne goes off and does his two uh, cop movies. Uh, and uh, he did have sense enough to hire John Sturges for McHugh, but I'm sure he probably had an electric cattle prod to keep Sturges from uh, asserting himself too much. And because if memory serves me right, it's not as what good a film as what Sturgis did toward the end of his career with the World War II uh, thriller, The Eagle Has Landed. And McHugh had the novelty of being done in Seattle, and uh, you could argue the other novelty was basically, and maybe Sturgis, if Wayne had been more trusting, 
could have gone farther with this angle, but McHugh at its best when it's getting away from uh, him, uh, shoving hippies uh, and uh, doing like standard uh, good guy, bad, uh, evil villain stuff with Al Materi, who, you know, Obviously, Wayne took notice of him, and uh, and but the most interesting aspect of McHugh was uh, the whole uh, ethos of uh, John Wayne's in 1973 Seattle, and uh, has to contend uh, with a whole lot of uh, moral relativism that well one one of them one of the examples of more moral relativism being uh, the character Diana Mildare plays and they want to uh, go much farther than that except to say by moral relativism it's basically a lot of the characters that are non-hippie counterculture, non-alitary, that are present uh, the, you know, positive uh, pillar of community faces to society turn out to be uh, people that are you know, what the heck, uh, let's, uh, you know, why, uh, hey, McHugh, why don't you look the other way while we uh, uh, make off of this money? Or, hey, would would you mind going uh, going off and uh, we could have a, you know, fling or a, or a marriage or something uh, and uh, spend, spend this uh, money? You, you wouldn't mind. And... And of course, uh, Wayne, you know, seems a little bit bewildered, but he triumphs in the end. So that that came out spring of '74, uh, about a year and a third later, 1975. Uh, and well, Mc, anyway, McHugh. What wasn't, as I remember, like a giant hit, so that was the end of Wayne uh, pulling his Batjack operation up to Warner's, so United Artists, uh, mid-1975, uh, when you have uh, films as Jaws in the marketplace, another cop film as a sort of Western uh, Brannigan, and obviously, even though Wayne probably thought of Eastwood uh, the way uh, Ben Crosby thought of Mick Jagger, in terms of uh, having a state image versus a more willing to be transgressive one, uh, Wayne must have looked at uh, 
Coogan's Bluff and like the idea of uh, going going to England. Uh, and it has a lot of out-of-date stereotyping about the, you know, the big manly duke uh, and the cream puff uh, Brits and you know, poor Richard Attenborough gets roped down as the sort of the uh, foil character, kind of like uh, oh, Lee J. Cobb was to Eastwood and Coogan. And, uh, and then Judy Geeson gets to be the other foil, the uh, female policewoman that follows him around and 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 Wayne doesn't uh, do any any kind of uh, macking on her or anything, although she's sort of like the wow wow if I were older I'd be totally into you type of flirting I guess that was in the script and. The interesting thing is I had Douglas Hickox as a director, and Hickox, you would classify as a journeyman, but he made one very interesting film about two years earlier, and I don't know if Wayne saw that, and that was the Vincent Price, uh, Diana Rigg, uh, Theater of Blood, where Price uh, basically took Dr. Fibes uh, further and... Uh, pretty much just poked a gigantic uh, barbecue implement into into his uh, previous uh, horror career, uh, primarily AIP. And at least with that film, uh, you had uh, really distinguished uh, uh, cast, including uh, Robert Morley, and um, but uh, Wayne obviously didn't want uh, Hickox to take him to the dark side uh, or the adventurous uh, side uh, while keeping one foot in in his uh, traditional image. So the one bit of like interesting casting is uh but unfortunately it's set up to where you don't see him except just sporadically through the film is uh, John Vernon as the villain and uh, and that's a shame it would have been nice to have had a script structured where uh Wayne and Vernon were on uh, equal footing because although Vernon was one of those types that would go to magazines and and I think might have been Crawdaddy could have been one and moan about how he was a great actor doing junk uh, that Vernon could always be surefire in roles of uh, distinguished uh, acting but uh, corrupt uh, uh, corporate types, and uh, and fortunately he was willing a few years later to have the grace to send himself up brilliantly in, in uh, Animal House. So, 
that was the that was the uh, cop western uh, duology of Wayne and and I guessing that uh, Brannigan probably did even worse than uh, than McHugh and and at that point I think Wayne knew he needed to, uh, to bolster himself with a surefire hit. So, so Hal Wallace at that point was producing for Universal and, uh, and he had done an interesting Western a few years earlier with Gregory Peck uh, called uh, Shootout uh, that was also directed by Henry Hathaway, but... Uh, takes a little more adventurous uh, route and uh, has interesting cast in it uh, and I may uh, touch on that in a future 70s western episode. So Rooster Cogburn uh, basically mashed up the African Queen with uh, the original True Grit storyline and uh, Catherine Hepburn who hadn't worked with Wayne before uh, and uh, you can say they weren't at their best but they were at least congenial and Allegedly, they booted uh, Stuart Millar, the director of record, on the film to one side and pretty much co-directed uh, uh, themselves. And uh, it had, uh, you know, good cast uh, in the villain or character component like uh, Richard Jordan as the villain kind of doing a, almost a half imitation of Robert Duvall in True Grit. Uh, Strother Martin, uh, you know, running like a uh, river ferry service. And, uh, and I don't remember the young actor, but they had uh, like a teens to twenties actor and you know, stuck with, uh, gee, Rooster, I want to be like you when I grow up, kind of dialogue to contend with. So that was the next to last uh, Western that Wayne did, and, that, and it was successful. Um, so uh, by August of 1976, The Shootist, uh, directed by Don Siegel, and, of course, that was... Whether whether or not it was consciously intended as a as a definite full stop final film of Wayne, uh, I don't know. There there was talk uh, toward the end of his life about uh, reteaming with uh, Ron Howard and doing a nineteen twenties, you know, patri patriarch uh, shows everybody the way story called Bo John, and Bo is in B E I U. And, uh, but anyway, uh, 
the shootist is, uh, I mean, Don Siegel was very candid about the headaches that Wayne gave him in, uh, in the late 1977 issue of AFI's American Film when he was uh, being interviewed to, to plug the Charles Bronson Lee Remick film he did that year, Telephon. And, and uh, by the time in the 90s when Siegel did his uh, uh, Siegel film uh, autobiography, he kind of mellowed out and backed away from from um, uh, being as critical of Wayne as, uh, as he was in the American uh, film interview and, you know, uh, Try to find a way to uh, Google it, uh, check it out, and and had people uh, Wayne had worked before with uh, Lauren Mc, Lauren McCall, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Hugh O'Brien, uh, briefly toward the climax, uh, 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 Richard Boone, Ron Howard playing the the, uh, you know, the boarding house uh, son of uh, Lauren Bacall's character and uh, and uh, have, having to, you know, learn to grow up and, I mean, not to be mean to Ron Howard, he's done good work past and present as a filmmaker and some not quite so, but... Uh, he seemed to in uh, in the shoot as kind of pitching his performances. He was on a on the Happy Day stage in Paramount, uh, playing playing to the uh, uh, you know live studio audience. It's it's a little bit bigger uh, than it needs needs to be, and you could say that. Probably if Wayne had gotten Andy McLaughlin to do uh, the shootist, it artistically it wouldn't have been all that different uh, from what Siegel's able to do with it within the restrictions. And uh, anyway, uh, Wayne was ill during the making of it and... Uh, I'll just uh, close uh, by saying the the last times Wayne uh, put on his familiar cowboy hat and and uh, leather vest and uh, uh, Dunstan belt buckle was for two different series of uh, television commercials. One was uh, for Daytroll which was a kind of aspirin, I'm assuming, like et cetera. And, and Wayne was still uh, obsessed with his image and uh, thought it was a sign of weakness to do a commercial for a product uh, that had to acknowledge people having headaches because in Wayne's images, mind that was weakness and the Daytrol ads I was able to see because I you know 
could see them on TV. They were broadcast uh, nationwide. Uh, the other ads uh, were regional to Southern California, and that was for the bank, Great Western, and obviously it, it put your money in a bank. Uh, that's not weakness. So those were the uh, farewell uh, to the Western genre for, for John Wayne being a commercial pitch person. And I'll just uh, close this by saying if you're going to read uh, books about Wayne, I'd kind of avoid the ones where he's still treated like a plaster saint uh, of, uh, of the conservatives. Uh, and uh, go for like the Scott Amon, uh, John Wayne biography and one that was done in the 90s by Gary Wills uh, called John Wayne's America, which the Wills one's more like uh, essays about Wayne crafting his image and and uh, talking about specific films. And the Amon one is pretty even-handed and not afraid to uh, d discuss Wayne's uh, uh, flaws as a person. So... Anyway, uh, this one's been a long episode, and uh, I'll be joining you again sometime uh, for a somewhat shorter one, uh, talking about more contemporary releases. And, uh, and uh, whether it's day or night, uh, wherever you are, um, have a good uh, yep. remember to to uh, if you like this uh, structured uh, rambling that's uh, going to become a little bit more uh, conventional structure as it goes along uh, please recommend to your friends uh, and uh, Please uh, uh, be nice and uh, say nice uh, things on uh, on uh, Twitter or Facebook or other forms of social media with uh, links to the podcast. And this is Terry McCarty, and thanks ever so much uh, for listening. See you again.